3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers, and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation, and we recognize their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis, and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, everyone. It is Wednesday. It, it is Wednesday the 19th. It's Wednesday the 19th, It yeah. is Wednesday the 19th of 2018. How are we all today? My name is Will. I'm Edwin. And I'm Judith. And um, you're listening to Wednesday Breakfast here on 3CR Community mm. Radio, Radical Radio. Yes, Radical Radio. indeed. And um, we've got some <laughs> pretty great interviews today, don't we? Yeah. yeah. We have a packed show today. Yeah. So we're going to give you a little bit of a rundown uh-huh. and then we'll kind of, I don't know, get into it. Yeah. 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 Um, Might have a chat. You know. What have we got coming up first, Judith? Well, first of all, we're going to be speaking to Father Rod Bauer, who's mm-hmm. um, kind of well known for the um, billboards that he's put outside the Gosfel, Gosford, sorry, Ang- Anglican Church mm-hmm. uh, around social issues like refugees, uh, marriage equality, gun control, so, you know, lots of things. And yeah. he's just written a book, and he's also going to be in Melbourne on the weekend, so we'll mm. hear more about that. And we'll have a quick talk about the, the Christian right wing that's... Yes, yes, and in fact, yeah, because he was interviewed for an article in the Saturday paper by Mm. Mike Sikkim on the the Christian right and and Scott Morrison and what's actually going on in Mm. that realm, yeah. Yeah, Um, so that's at 7.05, and then at 7.20 we're speaking to Professor Catherine Ross, is that right? Yes, we're going all over the country today, we're going to go to uh, the New South Wales syllabus, so if you get your VCE, we're talking about HSC for a little bit, and um, the new physics course, yeah. Yeah, and that'll be um, good to talk about. And then 7.35, speaking to Professor Samantha Hepburn. Yes, we will be. And she's looking at energy security in Australia and some really interesting information there. Mm. And we're pushing back alternative news to 7.50. We're going to be speaking about a couple of things, but more interestingly, at 8 o'clock, we're going to be speaking to the Executive Officer of Housing for the Aged Action Group, Fiona York. Folks listening at home may have... Um, heard there's um, a lot of spotlight being cast on on aged care, lately, yes, and aged care and services. The Four Corners program. The Four Corners program mm. was really impacting. Like yes. The new Royal Commission, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, the the Royal Commission has been announced by um, Scott Morrison yes. for some point in the future. Yep. Um, folks oh, at home can't see, but I'm waving my hands still, in the, My hands are waving vague. in the air. A little bit ambiguous. Going to happen sometime. Yeah, and uh, so, uh, you know, they knew that this report was going to come out on mm. Four Corners, and so... There's that, um, yes. and so uh, it'll be interesting to talk to someone who knows what they're talking about, Fiona York from a Housing for the Aged Action Group. Yeah, and we'll finish off with um, Gwenda Tavern, who's actually from La Trobe, and she'll be talking about um, Harper's uh, nine-year-old, uh, the nine-year-old Queensland student mm-hmm. last week who refused to stand up for the national anthem, mm. and kind of why she's received such an extreme... Um, Mm-hmm. onslaught of criticism and yeah. kind of talking about the fact that aggressive nationalism is rising in Australia as it is around the world. So mm. that will be an interesting interview. Absolutely. It'll be interesting to talk about mm. the way in which nationalism changes over time. Yeah. I'm really mm. keen to talk to Gwenda about that. 
Yeah, um, um, and that's going to be our show. That is our show. We've also got um, just to shout out some fantastic music being played. So we've yep. got um, we're going to have some Herd, which Ooh. is a traditional Melbourne rap group, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, as herd. well as yeah. some Thomas Dolby. And starting off the show, we'll have um, well, yes, Red Black Rock, rock Band, Black, Black Rock, <laughs> Red Rock, Black Black Rock Band, definitely. Yeah, yeah. Black yeah. Rock Band playing um, Bininj Gunborg. And that was Benin Gunborg by Black Rock Band. Um, yes, and what a fabulous young band. I think from Arnhem Land up that way uh, anyway. yeah. Well, whoever they're from, that was rocking. <laughs> like, <laughs> that was rocking. Really gets your blood pumping in the morning. Now, we're speaking to someone on the phone right now, are we, Jude? Well, we are, and mm. we'll be speaking with uh, Father Rod Bauer. And uh, it's kind of a follow-up because we've been following here on Wednesday Breakfast a, a lot that's been going on on the influence of the Christian right here in Australia and the influence on Australian politics, especially since Scott Morrison, who's a member of the Pentecostal megachurch, Hillsong, has become Prime Minister. But, you know, sometimes people ask, often people will ask, actually, well, what do you actually mean by Christian right? And a, a sort of definition I like by a U.S. commentator was, it's a U.S.-based social movement mm. that uses a pious and traditional constituency as a, as a mass base uh, for imposing a narrow theological agenda. I know this is getting long. <laughs> a narrow theological agenda uh. on secular society. Hmm. So you can think about if that sounds familiar in Australia. I mean, we can think of Philip Ruddock's Religious Freedom Review. Well, that's an interesting sort of definition for the Christian religious right. And it'd be interesting to get um, Father Rod's um, opinion on that. We've got uh, Father Rod on the phone right now. We do. And that's exactly what he was talking about in an article on the weekend. So, Father Rod, are you there? I am. Good morning. <laughs> Good morning. <laughs> and look, thank you so much. First of all, welcome back to uh, 3CR Wednesday Breakfast, because you were on earlier in the year May, I think, to when uh, your one of your uh, evening services was kind of invaded by a right-wing group from Melbourne, and that was a pretty um, stressful time for you then. Uh, yes. Well, is when you start talking about the religious right, that's a perfect example of what can happen uh, in the <laughs> mm. extremes of that, where... Uh, someone dressed up as Jesus <laughs> might in, invade a church and uh, and and, uh, and intimidate the, the parishioners. So uh, often uh, the, these things, when taken to their logical conclusion, can be uh, a particular form of fundamentalism. And uh, I think that's what we encountered there. And 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 perhaps that's the the fear that many hold in what we might encounter, uh, letting the uh, the religious right. Uh, off the leash as, uh, as quite possible under the current administration. Yes, and uh, and Father, I don't think I've, I've adequately introduced you because I understand, and please correct me, but you're the Archdeacon of the Central Coast Anglican Church in New South Wales, is that correct? Uh, yes, I, I'm, I'm now the Archdeacon for Justice Ministries in the Diocese of Newcastle, so my portfolio is really all about uh, social justice um, and especially with a focus on the, the poor, the marginalised and the voiceless. So that's, that's kind of my job. Yes. So when the Saturday paper, Mike Sikam, asked you about, um, you know, your feelings about what's been happening in Australia, and uh, one of the things you said was that uh, you wonder, with Scott Morrison as Prime Minister, you're wondering whether the Australian people want a Prime Minister whose worldview is framed by a narrow faith. What, what are your concerns? 
Well, I think well, there certainly there is and should never be any religious test for public office in Australia. And uh, so I'll, uh, uh, I, I support Scott Morrison's right to, to worship when and where and however uh, he sees fit. And so that's, that's not so much the issue. But I do think uh, the Australian people have the, the right and the responsibility, really, uh, of, of any of uh, their elected leaders to ask the question, uh, what is it that forms your world view? Uh, uh, what kind of architecture uh, do you use uh, to inform the big picture? And, uh, of course, with, uh, uh, with any person of religious faith, uh, that's, that's got something to do with it. Um, and now we've had uh, people of religious faith uh, throughout uh, our uh, our history, uh, our European uh, history. Yes. Uh, in terms of uh, our leaders, um, our former, I mean, only just former prime minister was a Roman Catholic. Um, uh, the issue the issue arises um, when some of these faith practices are, ta- are, are taken to their their logical conclusion in the political sphere. Uh, and what we've learned from uh, people who are, uh, I guess, part of a, what we would call a more universal church or any other faith, uh, that uh, they they understand the balance of how uh, that, that faith is lived out in the public sphere, uh, and and how how that how far that can go to influence people who don't share that faith, uh, and and certainly in a uh, in a secular democracy. What we don't yet know uh, is uh, how far Scott Morrison will, will go in taking his particular expression of Christianity, Pentecostalism, uh, to its logical conclusion. We, we caught a glimpse of this, and I think this is what caused a number of people concern. We caught a glimpse of this the other day when uh, he was asked um, about um, the, the, the forms of therapy that, that seeks to change people's sexuality. And, uh, and what... Uh, you, you, sorry, are you referring here to gay conversion therapy? Gay conversion therapy. Yes. Uh, and what most people were hoping for would be a response from uh, an elected leader uh, based in science uh, saying that uh, this, one, it doesn't work, and two, uh, according to uh, the United Nations, it's, it's, it's tantamount to torture. Um, so that's the response we would have expected and, and looked for from an elected leader. And yet what we got was uh, hedging his bets so that he didn't upset the religious right. Now, that, that is a cause of, uh, cause of great concern, not only in that particular issue, which has caused so much pain and, and, and damage to people, uh, but we're starting to wonder, you know, what other issues uh, will he hedge his bets on uh, in order to keep that base that he now has in the religious right? And and I think in the article you also referred to the fact that a lot of um, you know say evangelical or um, Pentecostal um, church leaders are kind of seen Scott Morrison as a kind of um, a miracle to have um, you know been elected or not elected actually but to become prime minister here and to be preaching from the the pulpit of the God, that the darkness will come to Australia if Scott Morrison does not get elected in the next election? I think I'd first want to, to, to qualify that this will be a very small section of the Pentecostal community. The, the, the Pentecostal movement has brought um, many great blessings to, 
the church and to the Christian movement. Uh, uh, it has uh, renewed um, our understanding of, uh, of the theology of the Holy Spirit. It's renewed our understanding of um, being a community that uh, uh, brings healing and wholeness. So it's brought you know lots of important things. But there is a small uh, stream uh, of this particular. We all have our we all have our problems. The Anglican Church. <laughs> yes, so indeed. We, we, yes, we've, we've all got the embarrassing cousins. Um, and I think what we saw the other day was the embarrassing cousin uh, of the Pentecostal movement saying these uh, extreme things, almost intimating that um, there was some divine movement in here that, and, and, and almost a divine right to rule <laughs> that yes. uh, uh, Scott Morrison had been given. And that's, that's taking um, some of this kind of stuff to logical Yes, and it's um, within Pentecostalism, isn't it? Is it is within Pentecostalism. Mm. As I say, we've all got our... We've, you know, every yes. combination has its embarrassments. Yeah. And, um, and so I, I think we, we don't want to brand the whole Pentecostal movement with no, this, I, but, we, but it is a cause for concern. Now, yes. Um, it's, and it's, I, can I say I appreciate also you putting that into perspective. And a couple of weeks ago we did have... Um, a, a discussion about what you know, the history of Pentecostalism here on 3CR Wednesday Breakfast with uh, Dr. Tim Jones, who's a historian in um, and particularly in the in the area of religion. So I, we're interested in it just for the, all these reasons, and and the point you make is really important. You've also said that um, in in the, in the article in the report of Sunday paper that um, the Prime Minister has behaved in a manner that's utterly contrary to the Judeo-Christian narrative on asylum seekers and refugees. Um, it, it, what is that narrative? I mean, in the, in the biblical narrative, uh, there's lots of grey areas and wiggle room on lots of uh, subjects. Uh, the human sexuality one, for instance, there's arguments on both sides, although I think the, the argument you know, against uh, blessing uh, same-sex relationships is very thin. But one of the things that there is absolutely no wiggle room in and absolutely no grey areas is the treatment of refugees. Uh, you know, right from the beginning, the narrative is based in that whole idea that uh, saying to the Hebrew people, you, you were foreigners in foreign land, you know what that's like. Uh, never treat people like you were treated in Egypt. And, and so that, that whole theme runs through the entire narrative. So on this particular issue, the, the treatment of refugees, asylum seekers, foreigners in our midst, uh, the, the, the Judeo-Christian tradition is utterly unambiguous. Right, uh, yes. Do not treat them like this. And so for a person who, who really trades on a Christian faith, more so than you know, any other Australian Prime Minister has in the past, I think, um, to, to be so utterly contradictory in that, uh, ask the questions about, you know, certainly political integrity, if not personal integrity. And I think they are valid questions for us. Yes, uh, and, uh, and Father Rod Bauer, I, I, I'm afraid our time is running out, but uh, I understand you're going to be in Melbourne this weekend to launch your book, Outspoken, Because All Justice is Social, published by Penguin. And uh, that's going to be happening this Saturday uh, at 10 o'clock. Uh, yes, in there's Gis a symposium uh, at St. Peter's Eastern Hills, uh, St. Peter's there, just uh, near Parliament House in Melbourne. 
uh, where there'll be a symposium on uh, Christianity in the, in the public sphere. Uh, I think that people are more than welcome to come along if you contact St Peter's at uh, East Melbourne. And uh, yes, I'll be launching the new book that really does talk about that, that dance that we have between order and justice within uh, within our, 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 our democracies. That's such an important subject. It is an important subject, and we really appreciate you coming on the show this morning to talk about it. Thank you so much, Roger. Pleasure. Bye. And you are listening to 3CR Community Radio. We'll be right back. I put you in a Hi, I'm Elise Platt, and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM on your radio dial. Friends of the Earth's Walk This Way is back. Join us on Saturday, October 13th on a sponsored walk of Melbourne's beautiful Bayside Tracks to launch our new waste and consumption campaign and take action on climate change. Together, we'll walk 15 kilometres and raise $20,000 for Friends of the Earth. We will be highlighting key issues around climate resilience, rising sea levels and plastic pollution in our oceans. Getting involved is simple. Sign up online at walkthisway.org.au. Get sponsored, spread the word and get walking. Join us as we journey through coastal communities who are most vulnerable to the impacts of climate change. We'll finish up with a community picnic in the Katani Gardens in St Kilda. Friends of the Earth is a proud supporter of CCR. Looking for an opportunity for more opportunities? University of Melbourne could help you find a future you thought was out of reach. If your circumstances prevented you from achieving your best possible ATAR, Access Melbourne is the chance you've been searching for. You could earn a scholarship worth $5,000 per year or be guaranteed a place at the University of Melbourne. Find out more at access.unimelb.edu.au. Applications close 12th of October. Melbourne University is a 3CR supporter. And you're listening to 3CR. Now, our next story looks at New South Wales, where their physics um, exam, or sorry, course, so HSE, the equivalent of our VCE curriculum, has just changed, which is what has been widely praised as a much more comprehensive course that already students entering into physics in university. However, we have Catherine Ross from the Sydney University, who's contending that the new course removes any mention of female contribution to the field, whilst 25 male scientists remain significant enough to keep in the books. What does this say about the new course? Well, we have Catherine here to talk to us. Good morning, Catherine. Good morning. Thank you for having me. No problem. Um, oh, well, I guess it's a HSC. It's a bit unknown here in Victoria. Could you give us a quick summary of the, um, the overall course and what, what the overall changes have been with this new design? Yeah, sure. So, like you said, the HSC is our sort of year 11 and year 12 course. Um, so students can sign up for physics to study in these years. And uh, in 2005, we introduced this old course that was very contextual, very based on the history, and it was actually meant to help the women get into uh, physics because we were noticing those percentages drop. Um, however, 
that course is sort of too contextual and we still noticed that mm. the percentages of women were dropping and students were showing up to university ill-prepared for the sort of rigorous and technicality that they found there. Um, and so there's been a call for a long time for a bit more of a rigorous syllabus and thankfully this one does um, meet that criteria. It is much more technical, there's a lot more new topics, for example, Mm. Students are studying uh, ferromagnetism, uh, which they've never had to do before, even thermodynamics, these really awesome physics topics. There's even a lot more uh, experiments, which is great to get students really involved and psyched about science. So I guess great. these changes as it's more hands-on, more mathematical, more scientific. Yeah, there's a lot more equations. There is a lot more science to it. But there's actually nothing that's sort of overwhelming for the students either. While there are a lot more equations, it's not actually mathematically much more difficult. They don't have to do any new maths. It's all still the same level. There's just a lot more of equations, yeah. Right. So I guess also with this um, change, the, the last course was critiqued for being too history-based. Um, and this one is very much more light on with the history. What is the um, key changes within that? Yeah, in fact, I think there's, it was actually an unintended um, ex- result, really. Uh, when they were getting rid of all that history, they actually removed the parts where teachers were talking about the contributions of women in physics. Mm-hmm. And now having only this technical side um, and removing all that context, Firstly, students lose that concept of how the physics is growing and the importance of each of these discoveries at the time, but they also lose the effect that women had and the contributions that we've had throughout the history of physics. There is not a single mention of a woman or their contributions, and yet men are in their left, right, and center. Yeah, and it is it is um, a funny decision that the men have remained part of the course whilst the women have just been cut. So it does kind of suggest that it is more of a, a gendered sort of move or, or I don't know, um, yeah, aspect to the new course. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's, it's not necessarily intended, like I said, but the fact that we're still learning about the contributions of men, in fact, of the total mentions of the men on the syllabus, over 35% of those mentions are specifically about the male's contribution to physics. Mm-hmm. So it's not like we are removing that context entirely, but we're removing the context that's related to the women in physics. And that's where the key issue is. It's that we're still learning of context, we're still learning of contributions, but only of men. And it's now also become quite specified as well. For example, in the new syllabus, there's a dot point in Module 7, The Nature of Light, that literally says, investigate Maxwell's contribution to classical theory. So that's looking at exactly and specifically the contributions of a man to the syllabus or to the physics um, at mm. that time when there's nothing nothing like that for a female scientist in there either. Right. Well, the females just go ignored. Um, I'll get you definitely to name some of our female scientists um, uh, because I don't think we know enough of them at the end of the sh- um, interview. But first off, I was a humanities student and science was always very foreign to me. And looking at science, you know, physics is physics, math is math. Why does science need to be so, or why is it so important that we retain gender in this conversation and in this course? Oh, it's incredibly important and shockingly not actually just for women either. By having the context and the development of history not hugely emphasised, but just teaching it along with what you're teaching in the technical side, students get a grasp of how the knowledge develops and it sort of follows how they should develop their knowledge as well. It also provides role models for everyone, seeing these uh, scientists, seeing their contributions, that's us celebrating what they've done in science. 
it's allowing students to aim high and aim to be celebrated in science as well. I think every scientist's dream is to find a star and name it after them or have a law that <laughs> have a legacy. named after them. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. Every scientist aims for that. And then to learn about it in science and in class is celebrating that fact. And if we're only celebrating the contributions of men, we're basically telling women that even if you do make a contribution, it's not worth us learning and it's not worth us celebrating. So we're basically telling the women you're not worth the time and you're not worth um, pursuing this career, whereas the men don't have that aspect at all. Um, and on top of that, it also provides role models for women. So it's really important for women to be able to see the steps that they can take throughout a career in physics, providing role models at the top that they can aspire to, as well as role models at an intermediate level that they can use as stepping stones to achieve that final goal of a professor or, you know, a world star physicist who knows what the goals could be. It's endless. But they need the role models to see that you can't be what you can't see. Well, yeah, and I, I suppose that kind of leads into my next question, which is with these uh, female role models just becoming, you know, part of the the, the, the normal, the baseline of this course, uh, I guess we do kind of remove gender from the, the, the course because we just take it as an assumption that there are just contributions by these people rather than, you know, just focusing on the male sector of this area. Yeah, exactly. We focus on the male part, but it is... Uh a whole range of people are, mm. in fact, contributing to this. And even there's space for it. It's not like I'm asking to change the entire syllabus. Um, it can be very easy to include these women. There's even a dot point that talks about the spectral classes um, in the new Module 8 from the University Adam, um, but those spectral classes were actually found by a woman. Annie Jump Chapman um, was part of the Harvard group who found that it was much easier to classify stars by their temperature than it was their content of hydrogen. And we look at these spectral classes, mm. but we don't learn of Annie Jump we just Chapman's don't learn the contribution. Name. Yeah. Exactly. Um, well, I suppose then what do you think this effect is going to have for future students? Uh, I think it'll be quite a shocking, um, a shocking effect. We'll see <laughs> a lot of women who will struggle a lot more um, and potentially larger, larger drops in the percentages of women taking physics. Um, okay. In this first year, we haven't noticed a major drop um, off the bat, but I think uh, the trend we could expect to be um, definitely dropping. But on top of that, it's likely that the women that do continue will suffer a lot more from things like lower self-efficacy, which is essentially their ability to set their own goals and achieve those goals and their resilience to receiving things like bad marks or struggling in the content in, in the subject. Um, and on top of that, we may even see uh, high levels of imposter syndrome where students basically think that there's been a mistake, they don't deserve to be there, uh. and it's only a matter of time until someone finds out and will tell them they're not meant to be there, which is exactly expected. If you're looking at a syllabus and you're only learning of men, you're not learning of the women, then of course you're going to think that you're the odd one out and you don't belong there. Cool. Well, I suppose we're running out of time, but I, I suppose the um, last answer I really want to ask you is can you please tell us one, uh, one of your favourite female scientists and, yeah, let us know why they need to be appreciated because I guess we hear the boys' names a lot, but um, I yeah. think we need to mix it up a bit. 
always happy to talk about a female scientist. <laughs> uh, in fact, one of my other favorite female scientists is actually from the University of Sydney as well. Her name is Associate Professor Tara Murphy. Um, she's actually a professor of astrophysics at the university um, and in radio astrophysics. So she looks at radio waves instead of optical light. And recently, her team was looking at the radio part of a neutron star merger. Um, this event for astronomers was incredibly exciting, and it was the first time we were able to look at an astronomical event using two messengers, both radio and optical optical light, all of that electromagnetic light, as well as gravitational waves. So her research is really sort of very exciting at the moment and right at the forefront. Yeah, that sounds um, funky. Yeah. It's an incredible time. <laughs> well, yeah, thank you so much for joining us, Catherine. I, I think, think you really brought home to us why it's so important that we yeah, keep this in our courses. Thank you so much. And see you later. Bye. You are listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast. And just before we throw to a song, I think it might be worth mentioning that there's going to be a Geek Girl coding workshop for kids aged five years up. And that's going to be happening this Saturday, the 22nd of September, from 9 to 10 a.m. at Acme. If you want to find out, go to Acme's website. Or, um, uh, yeah, you do need to do need to register for this event. And the idea is that only 12% of engineers are women and... We need to imagine an internet where women are participating not just in the content making but also the building of the internet. And so that's why you should register. If you've got a child, a, a girl aged five and up, why not register for this event happening this Saturday at 9 a.m. Um, now, what's the song that we're going to throw to? We're going to listen to She Blinded Me With Science, which I think happened and just did. <laughs> Let's go. Well, she blinded me with science. <laughs> what a great song. And uh, coming up next, we'll be speaking to Professor Sam- Samantha Hepburn, who is the director of the Centre for Energy and Natural Resources at Deakin University. And she's written an article for The Conversation entitled Explainer, What is Energy Security and How Has It Changed? So are you there, Samantha? Yes, I'm here, Judith. Thank you. And do you prefer to be called Sam or Samantha or Professor Hepburn? Oh, Sam is fine. <laughs> okay, thank you. And thanks for coming back on Wednesday Breakfast again. It's always great to, to have you here. Now, I'm wondering what prompted you to write this article. I, always, I should say I always like articles that say explainer because it kind of um, helps me to understand things that I don't understand so well. But why, why now and why this article? Well, look, I felt that we had... Um, it, it, I was reflecting on the the state of play in Australia at the moment. We seem to have a bit of uh, a sort of deadlock with regard to energy policy. And then I was thinking, well, what do we actually mean? The, the, the phrase energy security is thrown around a bit. And what does it actually mean today, given all of the changes that have been occurring? Obviously, the most profound one being climate change imperatives. But I think also the shift to renewables, the um, increasing geopolitical threats that we've got in terms of potential um, supply. And I'm talking about not just our electricity supply, but also um, our liquid fuel supply. So the whole concept of security, I think, has is changing, and, and in particular when we put energy in front of it. What do we mean when we talk about having a secure energy framework 
and how has that changed within a modern landscape? You know, that was my next question <laughs> to you, and uh, in particular, I, but I was wondering, where did the term energy security come from? Like, when, how did it originate? Yes, well, this is something that the article looks at. So, so it originally evolved from the 1973 uh, oil embargo. So it is actually a phrase that comes from liquid fuel security, and the primary focus there was to make sure that um, industrialised company uh, countries had um, full supply of liquid fuel, given the dependence that countries had upon, you know, petrol and diesel and oil and so forth. Um, and so, what what the idea at that point, because there was that embargo and that potential to disrupt massively. Um, you know, social and economic infrastructure. And and what um, what was the embargo again? The embargo was basically a, a product of uh, you know Middle East Middle Eastern countries controlling who would potentially who would be able to receive supply of oil, and so it, it ended up in in OPEC and um, the International Energy Agency evolved from that, and as a product of all of those potential outcomes and potential hazards, there was, generally speaking, an idea that if you were um, reliant on liquid fuel, um, you should have a stockpile, um, and that they, the, the recommended stockpile was 90 days. Oh, I and see. So the whole, mm-hmm. Yeah, so, so energy security was about having supply of liquid fuel and making sure that countries that produced it didn't um, interfere with the supply of countries that were dependent on on it. On I see. It. Mm-hmm. And so, when you uh, in the article you say that Australia is not energy secure, and so are you going back then to that definition of having 90 days supply when you say that? Absolutely, I am. I mean, the first point is that we don't have we have. We're well under the mandated 90 days. Now, when the original stockpiling requirement was introduced, um, we were net exporters. But now that we're net importers of liquid fuel... Australia is a net importer, yeah. Exactly. So we have, I think, uh, 91% reliant on imported fuel. And we don't have, we, we're non-compliant, we became non-compliant with that 90-day stockpiling requirement in 2012. I so see. So what that means is because we shifted, the landscape shifted, and we didn't adjust. Um, and so we are now in a reasonably precarious situation should there be uh, interference with supply, some sort of, uh, you know, threat in terms of any of the um, uh, access ways from Singapore, um, any sort of global terrorist geopolitical issues with the Middle East. A lot of the liquid fuel we get is from Singapore, which comes from the Middle East. So that's a big concern. I think we currently have 20 days of petrol and 21 days of diesel. And it's not clear how that would be distributed in the event of uh, you know a, a, a supply problem. I mean that's uh, that's really quite scary. I mean, what happens if it runs out? Like, what's it going to look like? Yeah, and the defence force is quite concerned about this as well. I mean, this is a 
a significant issue. Um, and, and as much as we can say, well, it's unlikely to happen, we don't necessarily know. And so security in that concept, in context is risk minimisation. And so it is having a stockpile, yes, but also having strategic plans on what our approach would be should that scenario eventuate. Um, and that, you know, that, that just makes sense given the, the framework that we're in. And, and as I say in the article, there's, there's a, the modern landscape. We have a whole range of different factors that are coming into play. Yes, um, I, I noticed you... Global, and there's shifting political alliances. Um, so we need to revise what energy security means in the liquid fuel context, but that also informs a little bit how we think about energy security broadly and, and how that might sort of play into the uh, electricity framework as well because, as I said in the article as well, um, we, are, we are so reliant on um, electricity now. So a lot of the old sort of mechanical and analogue um, devices that we had are now, you know, powered by electricity. And we've gone from, I think it's up to uh, something in the vicinity of 25 million billion devices or something in um, 2018, which was 400 million in 2001. So, I mean, yeah, that's a staggering figure. I read that and I just I was gobsmacked. It's amazing. Exactly. It's, well, it's, it's, if we see how many people use their devices every day, it's not surprising. No, no, it if isn't. Everyone needs yeah. to power these devices. Yes. And the whole framework is based upon these devices as well. When so, the so what goes down, you can't access anything. Well, I, I know that when I've, you know, left my mobile phone at home for even for, you know, a day or something like that, it's, uh, you so, know, even for, to find a bus stop at, you know, at a very well, local level. But I'm wondering, that's sorry, a security issue as well. You know, I mean, yes. we have to make sure. But and that and that is where we need to really think carefully about what we mean. Yes, we we are talking about supply, and and that obviously means taking into account how energy electricity is produced. But uh, an important, it's not just supply and pricing, and it's always portrayed that way. You know, it's costing you too much money, um, etc. It's about having adequate supply at, at a at an affordable price. Yes, but it's also about sustainability and resilience. And yes. that's, those are two crucial factors because within a decarbonising economy, and we know, I mean, extraordinary facts have come out saying that by 2050, we are likely to have 50% renewables, irrespective of the policy paralysis going on in Canberra at the moment. It's, it's, it's a juggernaut. It's happening, renewables. And so that is a reality in terms of what's going on in the electricity framework. So what then would you be advising the government to, to do? I'm sorry. Sorry, what would you be advising the government to do right now? Well, just to take account of what's actually going on. Um, you know, this idea that there, it seems to be just ignoring the, the fact that uh, distributed energy generation, wind and solar, is an enormous reality in Australia right now. It's It's... ANU Energy Institute has predicted that um, 
we will, as I said, we will have 50% renewable energy by 2050 um, and that renewable energy is going to become independently of the renewable energy target um, an enormously important component of the energy market. So that's happening irrespective of the policy, of, of the fact that the National Energy Guarantee was abandoned and, you know, emission reduction um, plans have been abandoned and so forth. So I think what I would recommend to Canberra is to take account of the fact that this is what people want an industry, you know, clean, efficient, um, you know, energy production in a framework where you've got rising peak demand and enormous imperatives to decarbonise. This is a decarbonisation is an integral component of our entire economic framework at the global level. Hi, so it's Will here. That. Just a quick question. So, in the context of decarbonisation, so the shift towards um, renewable fuels, what is meant by resilience? I know that you mentioned in the article yeah. storage, for example. Is that is that the is that what you mean by by resilience? What would make our yeah. infrastructure more resilient? Yeah, resilient is in, is very important. I mean, obviously, one of the factors with which is always sort of talked about with renewable energy is the idea of disruption mm. and that blackouts. So, you know, the blackouts that have occurred in South Australia were the product of, um, you know, the fact that renewable energy didn't had disruption as a, as a component of it because it couldn't continue because its inertia capabilities weren't the same as. Um, fossil fuel generation. Now that's, that's another word, Samantha, inertia that came up in your article, and yeah. uh, I understand this is a word that comes from physics. Exactly, and it's really just about how it, how the systems deal with disruption. Okay, and I suppose the idea is that fossil fuel can keep. If we look at it, you know, to try and explain it a, a little bit, you know, a little bit sort of quickly. Uh, it, the, if we look at renewable energy, the idea, uh, sorry, fossil fuel generation, the idea is, oh, well, we've got this, you know, corporeal real resource that we can keep burning or using and there won't be any disruption. That's security. Whereas it's ignoring the fact that technology has evolved to such a point that kinetic energy from the blades, for example, in the wind turbine can be stored. And we've got storage capacity as well. And if there is a disruption, then we can deal with that disruption and flexibly distribute to the areas where there's grid stress. So this is absolutely possible. Um, so we can't keep suggesting that, that um, renewables don't have the capacity to deal with disruption. And that's what resilience is about, of course, because the problem is... As we have, you know, obviously rising demand for energy, which is a product of the fact that we're all using more devices, devices are using more energy, population growth, etc., etc., you know, increasing demand in China and India, we are going to need more energy. And so it makes absolute sense, irrespective of our climate change imperatives, to ramp up Renewables, and that is exactly what is going on across Australia. We've got an enormous um, import from renewable energy um, and massive numbers of new wind and solar PV in the last two years. So as I said, 
it is likely we're going to get to 50% despite the fact that the government has not been focusing on market incentives for the renewable sector. Well, it sounds like the government certainly does need to give more attention to this issue. And Professor Samantha Hepburn, thank you so much for making time this morning. And the article, I would certainly recommend your article to our listeners. It was terrific. I really, yeah. And and your and your information today, expanding on some of the issues raised, it was just it's just great because it's a word, as you said earlier. You know, it, it flows around. What is energy security actually? And uh, yeah. so it's been you've been very helpful in clarifying oh, that. So thank you so much for coming on, Sam. Absolute pleasure. Thanks, thanks, Judith. You're listening to 3CR Breakfast. We'll be right back. City Limits, brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City limits. Hi, this is Rafiv Ziada and you're listening to 3CR Pro-Palestinian Happily Proud Radio. And you know what that means? It is time for alternative news, where we go through the news that's being covered and not by the mainstream media and critiquing what, what we hear and see and read. Um, it's a big ask, but I think we can do it, Judith. I think we can. Yeah. In nine minutes. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so we've been reading about, uh, we've been reading about heaps of different things, but one of them is this article in the New York Times. Trump finally makes a friend. Yay. Isn't it sweet? It is sweet. It's it was written so by um, American um, writer Maureen Dowd, who's an opinion columnist and won a Pulitzer. So she seems to know what she's talking about. But she um, she has she has some, I don't know if it's a dim view of our Prime Minister Scott Morrison. How would you characterize the view? Well, I would say it's a, almost a satirical article, actually. Ah. A, a lot of tongue-in-cheek yes. <laughs> going on yeah. here. And even, you know, it, it kind of has the Sesame Street feel with Trump <laughs> finally makes the <laughs> friend so cute. Oh. Yeah, okay, so, so, the, so the, the conceit of the article is basically that Trump is an international pariah, Yes. Um, I, I'd, I'd question that, given his relationship with uh, with the leaders of various um, various strongmen who who seem to welcome him with open arms. Like so, an international pariah in some circles. I, international pariah, mm. um, in only circles. only finding support in the, you know the the royal court of Saudi Arabia mm. and in um, oh. in Russia and yes. Turkey and yeah. all of those yeah. other uh, d- you know 
Duterte, mm. good friend. Mm. Anyway, I'm, I'm sure that they have their sort of cosmetic disagreements. But anyway, um, <laughs> the, the conceit of the article, to get back to it, is that um, Donald Trump is an international pariah um, who feels, quote, amazingly alone, unquote. Aww. And that was in President Trump's own words, the poor thing. Yeah. Uh, and so um, Scott Morrison? Yes. Come well, up. I mean, what it mm. sort of starts out, um, but there is someone. There is someone at the very bottom of the world. The bottom of the world. In the land of Mad Max. (laughs) Who wants to play ball? To quote Paul Keating, the arse end of the world. (laughs) Yeah. But this man wants to play ball with the Mad King. Mm. Definitely uh, fairy tale stuff. Yeah. In the Trump era, we can rewrite the maxim. To the maxim to be, if you want a friend in politics, get an Aussie. So, so this is kind of, you know, early on in the article. Yeah. And, and it's based on an interview she's done with Scott Morrison. Mm. And she talks a bit about, you know, how he came to be prime yes. minister. And how would uh, you characterize, just to get straight into it, um, Scott Morrison's um, statements on how he feels about President Trump in this article? Well, I, I think it's... Um, uh, I think he's a bit in awe of President Trump. Actually, I mean, I think it's a, is like a sycophant, almost a, like a looking up to, yeah. and uh, you know, an we, idol to mm. be, yeah, almost a mini me. Almost, he says that you know? President Trump seems to get it. Oh. Yes, and yes. the phrase "get it" is a quote. What does "get it" mean? I don't know. Ambiguous. Well, I think it seems to refer to um, that there's a disenfranchised group of people mm. in the community, ah. and I guess we'd have certainly here in Australia have to question whether um, Scott Morrison gets it. In yeah. fact, given <laughs> given some of his policies, right. but um, she does comment on. Um, He's, uh, you know, the comments that Scott Morrison makes on things like for the drought, for example, saying he even, uh, uh, even though he absurdly told me about climate change, that I just don't think it's relevant to the discussion about how we're helping farmers yeah. and urge drought victims to pray for that rain. Yeah, pray for rain was a direct quote. Yeah, yeah, that's what it looked it's like. In it's article. in quotation marks. So, yes. so certainly that suggests yes. that. And also she referred here to, you know, passing a religious freedom bill mm. in determinedly secular Australia, mm. where Pentecostals are commonly referred to as, and again in quotes, mm. happy clappers. Yeah, so uh, yeah. anyway, she she continues uh, around her discussion with Scott Morrison, yeah. and apparently in, in his office there's um, a migrant boat bearing the proud declaration, I stop these. And, um, yeah, a little sculpture of a boat in his office yes. with the words, I stop these on them. Yes. How... How hideous up. is that? Yeah. But anyway. Um, but but no, it's balanced with a biblical proverb to trust in the Lord. Oh, good. Yeah. And uh, he didn't, Morrison didn't, because of what you're asking, you know, mm. how how does uh, Morrison seem to relate to Trump? And mm. she points out that he didn't condemn Trump's infamous, infamous travel ban mm. and is never able to convincingly, convincingly explain how he reconciles his Christian values and the role he plays in dooming children to offshore detention centers. Mm. Mm. So, um, yeah. Some pretty horrible similarities there. Yes. Absolutely. Um, She does make a really good point, um, and I'm always interested to see how um, people in other countries view the mainstream um, political culture here in Australia. Um, So she makes a reference to Stephen Bradbury um, a little earlier. Folks who um, are listening and may not remember our, our hero, um, his was a um, an ice skater in the Winter Olympics back in 2002, who um, 
I've, I've actually heard a bit more about Stephen Bradbury since. The, the, the myth is that he was right at the back of the pack doing a speed skating event when, um, when all of his competitors in front of him fell over and he managed to skate through them into victory to win the gold. Um, I've since found out that he's actually a very determined uh, athlete who's um, very, very highly skilled and actually did manage to win a couple of his heats before the, the gold medal performance. But um, but this is used as a metaphor for Scott Morrison's ascendancy to the prime ministership. Yes. Um, in in this article, um, in the New York Times by Maureen Dowd, and um, the point is made at least that Scott Morrison wasn't elected. He managed to come through this messy, um, messy leadership spill in the Liberal Party. Yeah. And so, so Julie Bishop and Peter mm, Dutton kind mm. of crashed into each other. Yes, and, and that's used to that metaphor. used to mm. color the article and characterize um, Scott Morrison as. Um, a, a sort of a bumbling, uh, sort of dreamy character. Sort yes, of thing. I, I think yeah. so. I mean, that was my. Yeah. I think at best he's not, comes across as naive mm. in this article. Mm. At worst, a bit of a bumbler, bit yes. of, as you say, a bit yes. of a fool, or yes. yeah, just not. Uh, yeah. And also, you know, the the contradictions mm. between his Christian faith and yes. interestingly, she points out that Morrison is excited to deepen his relation with fellow evangelical Mike Pence mm. who was dispatched for clean-up duty after yeah. Trump shredded one of our closest relationships mm. and Pence and Morrison were not in favor of same-sex marriage. And so, you know, th- there's, I think what she's doing is also drawing parallels between the Christian right, which has pretty much taken over the Republican Party mm. in the United States mm. and to give us what we, we now are seeing in the United States uh, and what's happening in Australia and, uh, you know, the, with the Liberal Party here mm. being, to some, and I guess arguably taken over by both the Christian right but other right-wing groups. So uh, it's an interesting parallel, and we can look at what's happened in the United States and say, is this what we want to happen in Australia? Mm. Well, there you have it. Um, There you have it. That was alternative news. I know we quoted an article for the New York Times, but I think we can give this segment the subtitle, The View from Outside, How (laughs) how Americans See Australia. Um, You've been listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast. Uh, We'll be right back with an interview. Don't go away. Hi, I'm Rod Quantock, and you're listening to... Fill in the dots, you know who you're listening to. Why do I have to tell you who you're listening to? You know who you're listening to. You're listening to, yes, fill in the... 3CR Community Radio, you got it right, you've won a giraffe. Uh, we're at 8.55am, we're on digital radio and streaming at 3cr.org.au. 3CR has been making trouble since 1976 and occasionally I've been part of the trouble that's been made. It's a vital part of our uh, media landscape and I'd encourage you to get a hacksaw, an oxyacetylene torch and go up to the Dandenongs and, and bring down all those broadcast towers that aren't 3CR's towers and let's make 3CR the only source of information to an information-starved, dumbed-down Australian community. Written, authorised and spoken by Neil Mitchell. And you are listening to 3CR Community Radio. That was Rod Quantock. 
um, telling you to to vandalize nearby radio ta- towers. I wouldn't I wouldn't say the same, but uh, but it's I do really appreciate the support, right? Uh, so uh, you're listening to a Wednesday breakfast here on 3CR Community Radio, and up next we're going to be speaking to Fiona York, who is the executive officer of Housing for the Aged Action Group, otherwise known as HAG. Um, we are going to be speaking about aged care, um, which has recently been in the spotlight. Um, well, I mean, people have been paying attention to aged care since there's been such a thing as aged care because it's so important to basically every Australian family. But the Four Corners report that came out quite recently um, into the failures of the aged care system and the failure next week, they'll be talking about the failure to regulate the aged care sector, um, is very, Im- very impacting and ve- very damning. And there's also been a Royal Commission announced by Scott Morrison as Prime Minister. And so because of that, we're going to be speaking to Fiona York, who we have on the line. Fiona, are you there? Yeah, how are you going? Good, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us on Wednesday Breakfast. That's okay. Thank you. So uh, we we may as well get straight into it. We've had this Royal Commission announced by Scott Morrison into the aged care sector. Mm. Uh, Did he give any um, explanation as to why he thought now was the time for this Royal Commission? Uh, not as far as I'm aware. It seems to be the parameters of the Royal Commission aren't really clear at the moment, but obviously it was in response to the damning expose that was on Four Corners on um, Monday and the media that was over the weekend about the aged care system as well. Um, I'm not sure if you... Did you get a chance to have a look at that? I did, and it was yeah. just really shocking. Mm. Yeah, it's pretty disturbing stuff. Very disturbing, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, for our organisation, we're not working with um, residents who are in mm. what's known as nursing homes, which is, has been the focus of, um, of the Royal Commission and certainly the, the report. But what we have done yesterday is write to Scott Morrison, along with um, our partners at Consumer Action Law Centre and Council on the Ageing and residents of retirement villages and ask them to extend the scope of the Royal Commission to include other types of um, where older people live, mainly retirement villages and residential parks, um, because there was, um, there's been a lot of problems in those areas as well. So we really want the Royal Commission to be looking into that area too. Absolutely. So, uh, so this suggests to me that you think that there's, there, there are significant failures in mm. these types of care. Can you characterise for us the, the worries that, um, that elderly Australians have about, um, retirement homes, um, more yeah. broadly? Yeah, so I guess in Victoria there's been a focus on having people remain in their own home as long as possible and only moving into nursing homes when their care needs are really high. So being able to support people to live in their own homes through home care packages and and supports um, as much as possible. And that's slowly being, um, I guess, open up to the private sector, which is a worry because... You can see what happens when profits come before people mm. and it obviously is a systemic problem that's happening across Australia. Um, and in terms of retirement villages, what we're seeing is very similar where people are paying large amounts of money to enter into um, retirement villages which may be promoted through glossy brochures and, and when people get into the retirement villages they find that it's not exactly what they expected. Um, they may be not receiving any care at all if they were expecting it at all. And the contracts are confusing. Um, the management can be pretty patchy and pretty um, terrible. And there's just no level of, um, of training for managers or standardisation around contracts 
or openness around what people should expect. So that's why we've been calling for reform in that sector for a long time, as well as calling for an Ombudsman in Victoria to deal with complaints for residents. Um, but I think it's a systemic issue that goes across the whole country and it's time to probably have some national legislation that regulates the industry more broadly than just residential care. It certainly sounds so. So in these retirement villages, um, mm. uh, residents may not be receiving any care at all, even though they expect it. Is, mm. uh, can, we, can we call this a failure of regulation or is this a failure of implementation of regulation? Are the, are the rules there? Um, no, the rules, well, it's both actually. I think mm. there's been a big failure of regulation, like the regulator hasn't acted um, adequately. In terms of what people have to do when they're in those, those I, I wouldn't blame the staff in those villages at all um, or in those, reti- in those residential facilities because there's so much compliance around quality um, that people have to do. But when there is a problem, it's not clear whose responsibility it is to act on that problem. And that's what we've been seeing as well, as people, residents don't know where to go for help. Um, and it's not clear what part of the law they should be using. Um, and so it's not always easy to access justice or access some sort of solution to the problems. And the people that we see coming to us, even for there's a lack of expertise generally around what is the right thing to do in these situations and where to go if you are going to make a complaint. And if you are making a complaint, who acts on that complaint? Hmm. So it's, it's a whole range of issues, and I think it is, it's overdue to be looked at more closely. Now, in reference to the Four Corners report that came out, that was in reference uh, that focused mostly on nursing homes. Yeah. Uh, the, the the both the program and also the ANMF, the, um, the Union for Nurses and Midwives, has come out talking about how ratios, so the ratios of staff to yeah. patients or the staff to people being cared, um, is a big contributor to to the issues of neglect, to poor food, and all, all those sorts of issues that people face in nursing homes. Um, yeah. Are Levels of staffing a concern when it comes to retirement villages and other forms of aged um, aged housing? Well, I guess retirement villages are a little bit different because mm. the assumption is that if you're living in a retirement village, you don't have a high level of care that you're able to live independently. Um, and what we're seeing in, in those types of housing, and they're the people that come to us and are part of our membership more broadly, um, they are seeing that the types of housing that they're in are actually slowly being changed into more nursing home style arrangements. Um, because it's more lucrative for the operator, you can charge more money and you can get more subsidies from the federal government. So even though people may have moved into, say, an independent living unit, thinking that they would be living in a village with people who are able to live independently, over time that's slowly changing, and that's often without the consent or the awareness of people in the village, which is a which is a problem. Um, and I guess in terms of places where people may expect say, rental villages where there may be some sort of um, expectation that they're paying more money in order to get food, that's not regulated either. Mm. Um, So I think there is broadly a need for more regulation or more people, a clearer complaints process and a clearer process to deal with issues. But in terms of staffing in retirement villages, retirement villages don't generally have staff. Mm. Um, However... Having said that, it's important that the managers of those villages have a minimum standard of training um, because a lot of the disputes that arise between residents or with residents and managers could be easily resolved with managers that were able to respect and understand the needs of residents and we see very, very inconsistent management across retirement villages as well. Okay. Now, right at the top, you mentioned that HARG, um, Housing for the Aged Action Group, doesn't Mm. deal directly with... um, 
with residents of nursing homes, and this isn't your core, um, your core focus. But I imagine you work a lot with people who are in housing stress and people yeah. who are at risk of or experiencing homelessness, um, who are yeah. um, in the later years of their lives. Um, what is the 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 mood or the the sort of perception of nursing homes and nursing care amongst these people that you're hearing, especially in the light of this report? Yeah, I think. Generally, most people see residential care or nursing homes as the last resort. They don't have a great reputation and people don't want to move in there unless they really, really have to, despite the glossy brochures. So I think the concept of keeping people in their own home as long as possible is a valid one and has been supported through um, the system up until recently. However, it all is based on the idea that you actually have a home to stay in. And what we're seeing increasingly is that people don't, own their own homes when they retire. They're living in private rental, which is insecure and, and potentially um, of a low quality. And they may have to, if they do have their own home, they may have to sell it in order to move into retirement villages. And then they could be stuck there as well in situations that they don't particularly want to be in. So it's a complicated issue. And I think the idea of home ownership, that everybody that when they retire owns their own home is increasingly less true. Um, people are retiring with mortgages as well. So, yeah, it's a a systemic problem and we do need to be able to provide low-cost housing for people who are aged 55 plus and be able to have them plan for their retirement years. And we're not seeing that happening. Mm, This is maybe a bit of a a large question. It sounds like a lot of this boils down um, the the poor standards of care in nursing homes, the Mm. shift of retirement villages towards becoming like nursing homes. These are all based upon for-profit companies coming in and um, sort of pushing pushing their preferences upon um, upon elderly people. Um, it, it, it's a bit of a large question, but is HAG, in, in the opinion of HAG, is it possible to have good care in for-profit sort of system, in a for-profit system? <laughs> That's a big question. Yeah. Um, I think, oh, look, I think it probably suits some people, but I don't think we can expect the market to solve a lot of these social issues. We can't open it up to the market and expect that that will solve the problems for vulnerable people. It's it's geared towards people that have assets and have money. And what we're seeing is people who don't have assets and don't have any savings and don't have any super, particularly women, falling through the gaps. And it's a problem that I don't... What we're having, the conversations that I'm hearing now is not about how to provide person-centred care and how to make sure that people whose needs may be, you know, different if you don't speak English or you don't have any money, um, how do we provide for you? It's more about thin markets and how how do we prop up those places where perhaps the, the mainstream for-profits can't um, supply what they need to supply to help vulnerable people. And that's that's a pretty cynical and sad state of affairs, in my opinion. Absolutely. Now, um, we'll be very interested to hear um, what happens and what develops with the Royal Commission. Um, you've sent a letter to Scott Morrison hoping that the Royal Commission will be broadened to cover other mm. types of aged care and aged um, housing for the aged. Yeah, um, right. do, do we have any idea of like a timeline of the Royal Commission? So far, things have been fairly vague. Yeah, it has been. We understand that there hasn't been much certainty 
around it at all in terms of the structure or how it will proceed or um, what the terms of reference will be. But as a minimum, we would want to have all types of retirement housing included in the Royal Commission, not just residential care, which really is a small percentage of old people living in residential care. Obviously, their needs are really high, but um, most people try to avoid residential care. And so there's a whole range of housing that needs to be included in this. And we need to look at it systemically and try and provide as much as we can for older people um, in terms of what happens when they age. Okay. Well, um, we've been listening, speaking to Fiona York, who is Executive Officer of Housing for the Aged Action Group. Fiona, thank you so much for coming on. And just before you go, um, can we find out how people can follow um, the work of Housing for the Aged Action Group or Home at Last? Yep. Um, You can look at our website, which is oldertenants.org.au. Um, we're on Twitter at Hag Home at Last, that's H-A-G-G Home at Last, and we're also on Facebook. Um, we will be putting our submission to Scott Morrison and the other MPs up online today, and we also have a state election platform um, coming up for the Victorian state election, which you're welcome to download from our website and have a look at too. Absolutely, and we'll be looking forward to speaking to you in the future. Have a Great. lovely day. Thank you. Bye. Like in Canada and in Australia, they cannot discharge tailings directly into the riverways. But in Pogara, they discharge their tailings in the waterways and they kill us and they say it's okay. You are just being killed for trespassing. Subscribe to 3CR, bringing you voices and opinions the mainstream media don't dare touch. They have the exclusive right to extract the mineral below six feet, but that exclusive right does not permit them also to kill people. Who does the killing? The company has uh, specially arranged security forces. Subscribe today. Call 9419-8377. Friends of the Earth's Walk This Way is back. Join us on Saturday, October 13th on a sponsored walk of Melbourne's beautiful Bayside tracks to launch our new waste and consumption campaign and take action on climate change. Together, we'll walk 15 kilometres and raise $20,000 for Friends of the Earth. We will be highlighting key issues around climate resilience, rising sea levels and plastic pollution in our oceans. Getting involved is simple. Sign up online at walkthisway.org.au. Get sponsored, spread the word and get walking. Join us as we journey through coastal communities who are most vulnerable to the impacts of climate change. We'll finish up with a community picnic in the Katani Gardens in St Kilda. Friends of the Earth is a proud supporter of CCR. Estás sintonizando 3CR. 
94198377. The number is again 94198377. And you're listening to 3CR. Now, last week, uh, Harper Nielsen refused to stand up and sing the Australian anthem in protest that the anthem disrespects and ignores Indigenous Australians, instead kind of glorifying white Australians and marginalising Indigenous communities. For actions, the nine-year-old Queensland school student was threatened with suspension, violence and a barrage of nationalism that no one, I think, really could have predicted. To talk about the rise of this aggressive nationalism, both in Australia and globally, we talked to La Trobe um, Associate Professor in Politics and International Relations, Gwenda Tavan, here to talk to us. Good morning. Good morning. Nice to be here. Thanks. Um, so I was wondering, with this reaction to Harper last week, uh, it was nothing short of extraordinary. I mean, politicians calling her a brat, threats of violence, accusations she's a political pawn. What sparked this outburst and why have all the comments that we've had within you know, our racial discussion within Australia... Was this the one that got just smacked down so hard? Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know that it was all that extraordinary or even unprecedented. I think we have seen other examples of this in recent times. Mm-hmm. Um, what, ha- what tends to happen is um, there'll be a, an incident, someone will say something publicly, there'll be an outburst of uh, reaction, the media uh, then investigates, things die down and then you get the the next uh, incident. So you'll recall, for example, um, the brouhaha around Yasmin Abdel-Magid's comments Mm. uh, in regards to um, uh, Anzac Day, lest we forget. Um, And so very similar kind of reaction. That was, uh, um, I think, a year ago. So it's not completely kind of unexpected Um, and I think there's a kind of pattern that we're seeing here in which um, if people do speak out or try to you know um, maybe challenge what um, we assume are dominant viewpoints Mm. that um, you know the, the media I think is very sensitive to these issues um, will then go looking um, to people who they know will give um, a particular type of, you know, reaction. And this is, was certainly what we saw with Harper Nielsen. Um, the, the, you know, the people that were asked for their reaction were people like Tony Abbott and Pauline Hanson, who, you know, it was more than likely they were going to react the way they did. <laughs> yeah, so I suppose it's kind of giving platform to the people, getting ready to, you know, get outraged and using that to kind of spin a media story. Yeah, so I don't want to put it all on um, in the media's lap mm. in, in that respect, but certainly I think there is a, a sense that, you know, um, uh, journalists are aware that, you know, they will get the uh, reaction and, and, and that will kind of you know, provide some story and drama uh, for uh, a day or so. And then, of course, you know, as I said, you know, the, 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 the kind of the, everyone jumps on the bandwagons, academics mm. like myself, uh, right against and, it. <laughs> and provide some analysis, et cetera, et cetera. But having said that, I don't want to sound glib. I think that there are some very serious issues at stake here and that is that um, the right of people to question and debate regardless of where you you know you stand in terms of these particular issues the right to have a reasonable uh, civilized discussion about issues that are sensitive without fear well you make a brilliant 
criticised or bullied or threatened or harassed. Yeah, sorry to interrupt. Um, you've, you make a brilliant point that these are the people uh, who, who came out against Harper. These are the people who were fighting for the right to be a bigot. You know, the people who are saying we should be having freedom of our own speech in Australia, and yet they're the ones who are denying other people freedom of expression. Yeah, I, I do have a problem with this double standard because it does seem to be that it depends on the issue whether whether you you know um, whether you advocate for free speech or not. So mm. um, we saw this with the Racial Discrimination Discrimination Act and um, a proposed amendment to to that because you know on the on the grounds of free speech, and yet here was someone. A, a young girl exercising her right to free speech to make a point, um, and yet she was shouted down in a really, I thought, um, quite disturbing manner. Because after all, we're not talking about other. Well, we're talking about adults with um, with a you know with a platform, mm. with very res- responsible positions. And I, you know, when I heard about the reactions um, and read Hanson's response in particular, I was really shocked, both as a both as a citizen, but also as a parent. Yeah. Um, that someone felt that confident about their own position uh, and their their right to say such a thing, and I I think it must have, you know, I assume it would have been quite distressing for a nine year old to hear herself being talked about like that by some of the most powerful people in 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 the land. Yeah, it doesn't leave much to be desired to. Um, spinning back to your your article and these um, responses that Harper did receive, a lot of them were driven from nationalism or at least an overblown sense of nationalism, you know, what it means to be Australian. Are you Australian? Yeah. Um, I was wondering if you could talk about, I suppose, yeah, this rise of what you call aggressive nationalism in Australia yeah. and globally. I mean, a lot of people will, will um, try to draw distinctions between being nationalist and being patriot. patriot so no, that was say, my next well, question. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that really what they're talking about is uh, love of country, mm. um, uh, pride. But I think, you know, and there's a, an ongoing debate about what is what is the relationship exactly between patriotism and nationalism yeah. but I, I would argue that nationalism is a kind of more intense uh, it goes beyond affection or pride for, for country it becomes a much more extreme you know my country do or die yeah. um, that loyalty means never questioning um, and always putting the nation, uh, uh, however you imagine that, to be above and beyond any reproach or inquiry. And, of course, when we do that, what we're actually also effectively doing is empowering those um, who already have power, i.e. governments, mm-hmm. um, to make decisions in the name of the, the country or nation. And I do think that this has been... Um, it's been it's been brewing for, qu- for quite a while, this kind of... Um, uh, nationalism that is quite, you know, aggressive. It it it, it, um, it has a threatening, um, angry quality to it um, that includes, you know, identifying groups or people that are, um, are seen as um, threatening to the national community, and um, and that actually can shift then into into violence. And this has been going on for quite a while, and it's. It's not consistent, mm. um, as I say. It tends to what we see. I mean, I think it's brewing, but what happens is it manifests itself in particular incidents. And I think, for example, we can go back as far as, say, the Cronulla Beach riots in yeah. 2005. 
and see examples of this, you know, where um, good Australians, patriots were advised to go out and bash a leb or a wog yeah. in, the name of, uh, in the name of a uh, national identity and security. Um, so um, we are seeing more of it. I make the point in the article that it's, it's not clear mm. that this is actually an increase in the number of people who support these sorts of views or whether it's just that the people who support those views are getting more confident, more aggressive or louder. Yeah, I, I was mean, going to could, say, is yeah. it, sorry, sorry to interrupt, but is it you know, a minority with a megaphone or is it Australia's an yeah. overall growing trend? I suppose in history we've seen um, the rise of nationalism lead to absolutely horrifying end results so it is exactly. scary this sort of intense zeal um we are going to have to wrap up the interview soon so I, i'd like to just finish on the note of um you bring up a wonderful point in the article talking about um how we create history and how patriots kind of shape our history and so i was just going to end on the question our anthem is so racist i mean looking at the the, the different verses of it Indigenous Australians are just omitted from it completely. It glorifies England connections. I'm wondering, how do we still have such a racist history, a racist anthem? Well, um, I make, again, I make the point in the article that, you know, if you look at the history of Advanced Australia Fair, it, you know, um, it came, it, it's only been our anthem since 1974. Mm. Um, it, it got there by, by virtue of a popular vote in which only um, 51% of people supported it. <laughs> These things are not oh. static. Once upon a time, people who, who advocated for Advanced Australia Fair were, um, were criticised as being unpatriotic mm. because they didn't support God Save the Queen as our anthem. So, you know, we should, in a mature democracy, people should be able to query and question and discuss the relevance of those symbols we use to identify ourselves. And I agree with you. I think um, an anthem that does not do justice to the complexity of our story, um, the place of uh, Indigenous Australians in this, the place of immigrants, uh, that isn't, that doesn't reflect our contemporary values, should mm. certainly be looked at. No, it's just shocking, um, the reaction and the sentiment we've got going on. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, I'd really love to talk to you more on this topic, and I really do suggest that our listeners do check out your article in the conversation. Um, otherwise, I hope to get in contact with you uh, in the future and look at this rise of nationalism, hopefully not. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you. You are listening to 3CR Community Radio. We'll be right back. Are we on a path? to totalitarianism? Are governments and technocrats developing technologies that hand them greater control over our lives? In the face of such far-reaching webs of control, what are we to do? With speculative minds Lizzie O'Shea, Timothy Eric Strom and Jacob Grech, we're going to be exploring these questions and more through a live panel discussion. Tune in on Wednesday, September 26th from 7am on 3CR Breakfast, where we contemplate the societies of the future. Let's reclaim our minds from the cultural engineers. And that is next week on Wednesday Breakfast, so absolutely tune in, starting at 7am. Um, we're going to have live guests here in the studio 
I'm going to be talking all about everything that was mentioned in that um, in that announcement just now. And uh, we're looking forward to having Layla, who um, had Yay. been part of our Wednesday team for a couple of weeks, come yeah. back and help great. us with that panel, hang out yeah. and chat to some, some really great thinkers. Um, yeah. It's been a good show today, hasn't it? Wonderful show. Yeah. Wonderful show. Yeah. We started off with um, talking about Christian rights and of and that with the um, Liberal Party. Yeah, and Christian Father rights or the right. Christian <laughs> rights? The Christian <laughs> rights, yeah. And Father Rod Bauer from the mm. Gosford Anglican Church and, uh, and mm. his book coming up. And also that he'll be... Um, Talking in Melbourne on the weekend, uh, mm-hmm. and we can put something on our website about that. Yeah, we can. And we also spoke to Professor Catherine Ross about um, the removal of women from HSC. Mm-hmm. Sorry, we've been speaking to Catherine Ross, I beg yep. your pardon, um, about the removal of women from um, science history. And then we also spoke to Samantha Hepburn, Professor Samantha Lots Hepburn. Lots of ladies in science, though. About, um, <laughs> yeah. about uh, the way that we need to change our energy um, policy. Then we spoke to the Housing for the Aged Action Group about um, elder care. And then we just ent- um entered with Gwenda Tavan. And she was just talking right. about the rise of aggressive nationalism. Fantastic show today. Um, Fantastic show. Have folks. a lovely day. And next up is Stick Together. Enjoy the rest of your day, folks. 3CR relies on the support of ethical organisations to keep our vital community of voices on air. And we'd like to thank our breakfast supporters, the new international bookshop, Nibs, at Trades Hall, and eco-friendly paper and printing outfit, Earth Greetings. You can check them out at nibs.org.au and earthgreetings.com.au. And if you'd like more information on how your organisation can become a 3CR supporter, contact the station on 03 9419 You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.